This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03, Thursday afternoon, April 6th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour. I'm Rob Hart. The Easter weekend will include the release of a couple of major movies. We'll get an update in our next segment. But right now, high school seniors are facing decision day on their choices for college. We talk about sorting through all and understanding all the offers with Frank Palmasani, college affordability and financial aid expert and a college counselor Providence Catholic High School, based in New Lenox. Frank, thank you for joining us today. And decisions, 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 and oh, so many data points to weigh as those college acceptance letters roll in, and hopefully lots of uh, offers for financial aid and assistance and knocking off a couple of thousand dollars from that tuition bill. And Frank, it's a, it's a big decision to put on an 18-year-old head. There's no question about that, Rob. And you know, when you when you analyze all the variables that go into the college decision, a student may be very much influenced by whether schools are the right place academically and from an atmosphere standpoint. But ultimately, the family has to be quite involved, given the cost of college today, and make sure that the student doesn't put themselves in long-term financial jeopardy or the family doesn't put themselves in long-term financial jeopardy by finding the right financial fit. And that takes a lot of sophistication and understanding of how to read these actual award letters. In your experience as a college counselor, do you find that the vast majority of families go with the school that offers the most generous financial aid package, whether it's uh, grants or scholarships? Well, I think one of the things that's important when you analyze all of this is not necessarily to, uh, to look at what the package is, that's obviously critical to get you to what your price will be, your actual out-of-pocket cost. So that's the element of comparison you want to use. And so let's assume that we have multiple options, six, eight, ten options. It's important to have this spreadsheet that allows you to get eventually to comparing your actual out-of-pocket cost from one school to another. And then factor in as to whether this degree can be done in four years at one school versus maybe five in another school. All of these variables have much to do with the actual cost. But then, to to your question specifically, my experience has been that many families, unfortunately and sadly, make decisions too much independent of the financial repercussions, and then they end up uh, regretting that uh, long-term, especially when you look at this data that we all have we're all very aware of, and that is the volume of debt that students have taken on. Let's say you do have multiple offers and the uh, most attractive financial package, however, does not line up with the school that the student really enjoyed, uh, either through shadowing opportunities or from a campus visit. Uh, Is there some way you can meet in the middle in terms of getting that school that the student really likes to potentially offer a little bit more when it comes to uh, financial aid? Great question. So when a student or a family has a number one college choice, and that choice is beyond affordability. And so, you know, when, when we talk to families, we talk about this systematic way to make a judgment on affordability. Uh, one of the things that I've always dreamed of is having 
the Department of Education come up with a real affordability calculator. So someone could actually establish what is it can we afford on a yearly basis. But ultimately, once the family assesses that, if there's a school that's the number one choice, that's the beyond the affordability, but other schools are in that affordability mix, it would be important for that particular family to go to that particular institution and see if they've missed anything. Is there any way that this school is willing to work with the family? There are a number of schools that will and a number of schools that won't. And so the key is you can certainly know we, we have that background because of the you know time that we've been involved in this. But, you know, many families on their own don't know if a school has a tendency to want to work with you or not. So the best thing to do is to ask. Frank Paul. Frank Paul. You can go forward. Well, great advice. Frank Paul Masani, college affordability and financial aid expert and college counselor at Providence Catholic High School in New Lenox. Thank you for joining us today. Conversation that's on the money. You're listening to the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Movies featuring video game superstars and a story involving a basketball legend come to theaters this weekend. Let's discuss the level of anticipation with Paul DeGarabedian, senior media analyst for the box office tracking company Comscore, based in L.A. Paul, thanks for joining us today. It seems like the big box office battle is between Super Mario Brothers, based, of course, on the video game franchise, and Air, which is the movie about the development of the Nike Air Jordan gym you uh, from almost 40 years ago. And just based on my own uh, social media feeds, it seems like Super Mario Brothers will probably be a monster this weekend. Absolutely, Rob, and very anticipated. And the history of the video game movie at the box office has been very uh, uneven to say the least, but animated films like Sonic the Hedgehog and Sonic the Hedgehog 2, the Angry Birds movie, Uh, Pokemon, Detective Pikachu have all done really well. So particularly when you're in the animated realm with a video game adaptation with a PG rating and, of course, all the nostalgia and uh, iconic imagery uh, from the Super Mario game, it just all comes together with this great Nintendo brand plus Illumination entertainment did who did the despicable me movies like everything is working in its favor and universal picked a great release date we're we're not official yet on it but it looks like the wednesday number when it opened for super mario is around 30 million dollars which is a huge number that's a great opening weekend for some movies this may wind up being just an absolute monster over the five day wednesday through sunday opening for Super Mario. And this is also, if you factor in inflation, $30 million on day one is almost the entire box office gross of the 1993 Super Mario Brothers movie uh, with yeah. Bob Hoskins and Dennis Hopper. And uh, one of the legendary stories about the first attempt at a Super Mario Brothers movie is that Bob Hoskins, the late legendary British actor, had no idea, he had, not, had no knowledge of the video game franchise, uh, just like the uh, dollar amount attached to it. Exactly. And and you're great with your uh, history and your knowledge of, of the history of film with that first Super Mario movie. This one is, I think, uh, just kind of hitting on all cylinders. And we're leading into the Easter weekend. So it's like a holiday frame, as we call it, at the movies. But then they have the movie Air, which you, you mentioned, which is certainly going to do much less in terms of box office. 
But it's really important that this movie, you know, is going to movie theaters. Originally, it was set to go on the small screen and it's on the big screen. And I think anybody who's interested in history or just the the brands involved here and, of course, Michael Jordan, it's just pretty incredible that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, they're like they've been on the on a tour promoting the movie and they're the best of friends. So cool going from Goodwill Hunting to Air. And I think that's just there's something for everybody out there. John Wick 4 is out there in the marketplace. There's a faith-based movie called His Only Son that's doing well. Scream 6, Creed 3, Shazam. And, of course, we're going to have a lot of big movies on the way. And, we're, we're Rob, we're, we're closing in on that summer movie season that starts uh, the first Friday in May with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And I got to hand it to the John Wick franchise that uh, this – this this kind of you know basic action movie uh, franchise, but but it's also well choreographed. I mean, I think all the fight scenes involving uh, Keanu Reeves are almost have a ballet quality to them. Absolutely, and, and it's just so accessible. And once again, that's it's the movie for people who just want to see a movie. And you're right. And and at two hours and forty nine minutes, it it goes by pretty darn fast, Rob. It's a terrific film, like you said, the choreography, and it's directed by Chad Stahelski, who is a stunt person himself. And so when you have stunt people uh, being heavily involved in the in the directing process and also the choreography, it's like it's balletic in a way, like a ballet almost, the way that these scenes are choreographed. But it's so over the top. The, the term suspend disbelief really applies here for John Wick. But what a great ride in theaters. I think movie theaters right now are on a roll. This is really good. And though some theater chains have had some issues that doesn't mean that people don't want to go to the movies. That just speaks to the individual business dynamics of those particular exhibitors or theater owners. But very robust slate on the calendar. They just dropped the new Barbie trailer. That looks amazing. And uh, a lot of big movies on the way. So this has been a great March. Now it's a great April with Super Mario and more to come for movie theaters. Paul, De- Paul DeGarabedian, Senior Media Analyst for Comscore based in Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up next, another major search engine is turning to artificial intelligence. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Google has announced it will be adding artificial intelligence to its main search engine. Let's get the latest from Shelley Palmer, the CEO of the Palmer Group, Professor of Advanced Media in Residence at the Newhouse School of Public Communication based at Syracuse University. Shelly, thanks for joining us today. So the Google AI uh, is called BARD, and how will BARD improve your Google experience? That has yet to be seen. Uh, they are obviously playing catch-up, and they're playing catch-up from pretty far behind. Uh, Google, as you and I have discussed previously, is having its Kodak moment. If you remember, Kodak invented digital photography and They had a very, very, very large paper and film business they did not want to interfere with. And so they just put digital photography in a drawer until it was too late. Google practically invented um, the large language model generative free train transformer world. Uh, They did it for Google Translate and for their search business. And they make so much money annually from search. It's not funny. And you are going to reduce web traffic with BARD or GPT-4 or any of the large language models. And reducing web traffic means less people clicking on things Google makes money on. So they are highly motivated not to do this. They're also kind of forced to do it because 
you're just going to start using tools that, that work better for you, like ChatGPT. And so, yeah, how is BARD going to be better or different? BARD's going to have to walk an interesting line. Now, last week, Bing, the Microsoft search product, which no one had ever talked about till they incorporated ChatGPT, said they're thinking about putting ads inside the conversations. Uh, if they do that in any way that is intrusive or bothersome, I think most people are going to go, nah, don't need this. So this is not cut and dried. It is unclear that adding um, a ad-supported chat client is going to help. And it's not clear that if they don't have ads that they're going to make enough money. Um, and Or maybe they'll charge a subscription, but would you subscribe to Google if you had other options? Well, well, Shelley, here's my question for you. You talk about, uh, and, and then very quickly, um, the one of the big knocks on Google is that uh, the paid search side of things have made Google searches practically useless. Um, you don't get the information you need. You just get a lot of paper for per, paper pay for performance links toward the top. Um, mm-hmm. So, how does how would introducing ads into an AI make it? better by any way shape or form and you know how how, isn't it basically will will the ai just basically give you the google that you wanted many years ago it's a really interesting question look when you search for something now like let's say we're sad enough to have to go to the doctor and the doctor tells us we have some disease or something when you go to google it you don't get the right answer you get the answer with you don't get the best answer you get the answer with the best seo the best search engine optimization. So you're never going to get the best answer out of Google, no matter what. You're going to get the answer that's most popular. And I think this is going to become a very interesting AI war between OpenAI and Google and ultimately every other large tech company. And then again, many small companies, because you just need to be good at math to get this done. You don't need a lot of computer power, contrary to popular belief. Uh, This game has changed in the last six weeks and continues to change at an exponential pace. So um, everybody's going to have to adopt a wait-and-see attitude, and these companies are going to be competing for your attention. So give it to them wisely. Shelley Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group. This is Chicago's News Traffic and Weather Station, News Radio 105.9. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. Investigators reveal the cause of a fire yesterday that led to the death of a Chicago firefighter. We're finding out more about another deadly fire in the city this week. It's Technology Thursday, the latest gadgets that can help you get in shape this spring. And we'll also discuss an investment strategy based on a belief that the stock market underperforms between May and October. WBBM Business, the markets are higher today. The Dow is up 37 points, the NASDAQ is up 73, and the S&P 500 up 13. 43 degrees right now in Chicago under partly sunny skies, going up to 54. It's 1231. Topping our news at the half hour, investigators have ruled that the cause of a fire yesterday in a high-rise on DuSable Lakeshore Drive and Division was accidental. The Chicago Fire Department says it started from combustibles being too close to a heat-generating appliance. Veteran CFD Lieutenant John Torek died while climbing the stairs to battle the flames in a 27th floor apartment. Meantime, more is being revealed about the death of another Chicago firefighter earlier this week. Jermaine Pelt was inside a burning building on the south side. When crews were ordered out, he didn't make it. The medical examiner's office says he died of carbon monoxide toxicity due to inhalation of smoke and soot. 
Fire Commissioner Annette Nance Holt knew the 49-year-old firefighter personally. A mayday was called and he was quickly found near the hose line and brought out for treatment. Our firefighters and paramedics, they work feverishly on Jermaine doing CPR all the way from the scene to Christ Hospital. The commissioner would again find herself talking about a second line of duty death after 55-year-old Lieutenant John Torek died after collapsing in the stairwell of a Lakeshore Drive high-rise. He and his crew were climbing the stairs to the 27th floor. Water damage made the elevators inoperable. Torek collapsed on the 11th floor and later died at Northwestern. Again, they worked on him all the way to the hospital. Mike Krauser, 105.9 WBBM. It's 12.32 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are modestly higher. We're joined by Jim Awad, Senior Managing Director at Clearstead Advisors based in New York. Jim, thanks for joining us today. It appears uh, investors are trying to make sense of you know just where the job market is at right now. Now, the markets are closed tomorrow, so they won't be able to react to the uh, March employment report until Monday. Directionally, uh, every index, every reading this week points to a slower economy, whether you're talking about the ISM manufacturing, the ISM services, uh, ADP, jolts, uh, uh, claims today. We know directionally the labor market is, is loosening up, and we also know we're making progress on inflation. Uh, prices paid in the ISM indices went down. Uh, uh, wages in ADP, the, the rate of wage gain uh, decelerated. So we do know that we're getting closer to a peak in rates, that inflation will gradually uh, uh, re- continue to recede. What we don't yet know is what the effect of that is on corporate profits going forward. And we'll start to hear from corporations the end of next week and over the following four weeks. Um, if we can discern that we're, we're at or near the peak in rates, if we can then discern that the profit hit is not terrible, then we're going to be okay. Is this the natural lagging indicator of the interest rate hikes that began over a year ago, or is this merely a sign of the resilience of the job market up to up until now that it took over a year for things to begin to slow down? Yeah, a little bit of both. You know, it is a lagging indicator because these rate increases take effect, you've heard it many times, with a, 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 a long and variable lag. But, but it's sort of like uh, putting bricks on the shoulder of somebody climbing a mountain. Eventually, uh, it has its effect, and it's having its, its effect. Uh, and it, and it, created, it created the problem, the credit problem, with some of the banks, and the banks are getting tighter in their lending, uh, and that's tightening up the economy. So uh, we, we, we do know where we're going. It did take a little bit longer than expected, uh, one, because the data is rearward-looking, uh, and secondly, because you came into it with all the stimulus money, but it's definitely happening now. Is stagflation a concern that you can see an economic slowdown, but uh, uh, inflation will not ease? Inflation is easing. The, the only question is, you know, how fast and how much. But uh, uh, all, all the and, and if the economy continues to slow, that will help to take care of inflation. The Fed's going to get what it wants. The question is, how long is it going to take? And if the Fed continues to look at rear-looking uh, uh, measures, will they end up overkilling the uh, uh, overkill in terms of their tightness? We don't know that yet. But the Fed's getting the slowing, and it's getting it's getting the slowdown. 
uh, in inflation. We, as I said a few minutes ago, we now have to see what its effect on the economy and profits. And then uh, when it comes to uh, the, the idea, the, the potential for a soft landing, it appears it's still on the menu. That's still a possibility just because maybe you, you'll see these layoffs and people will quickly find jobs elsewhere, but the number of job openings will just merely disappear, and that will replace the layoffs that we might have seen in a different economic environment. Yeah, well, that, the, the soft landing is definitely still possible. It's, not, it's certainly not a slam dunk. And key would be no more financial uh, uh, problems with the banks. That's what you have to watch. I would, I'd also like to point out that with interest rates going down now, uh, uh, both long and short rates, that takes some of the pressure off um, banks' bond portfolios, which was creating the problem that the portfolios were at a loss and that they, they couldn't sell them if depositors left. So uh, the financial situation for the moment seems to have stabilized. If it stays stable, then the chances of a soft landing increase. Jim Awad, Senior Managing Director, Clearstead Advisors, based in New York. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next in Technology Thursday, improving your health this spring with assistance from electronic devices. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Technology Thursday, and this afternoon the spotlight is on devices and gadgets that can help you monitor and hopefully improve your health. We welcome in Carl Prouty, the technologist at Apt Electronics in Glenview. Carl, thanks for joining us today. And I don't know about you, but uh, I've been looking at the long-term forecast for next week and just uh, thinking about days in which I can uh, take the bike up on the uh, North Branch Trail, uh, perhaps uh, up to Harms Woods in Glenview for the uh, first time in 2023. And as suspect a lot of other people be doing the same and possibly uh, uh, wearing a wearable or two along the way. So what are some of the really good devices that can uh, track your health and fitness while you're uh, walking or biking or running or going golfing? Well, so the most popular ones are generally the watches. So Fitbit, for example, they make one called a Versa 4. And it's not as expensive as an Apple Watch, but it has GPS built in so it can track where you're going while you run without having to have your phone on you. So if you're someone who just kind of likes to be in the moment um, and not have your phone on you for that time you're exercising, it's a great watch to do that with. It can track your blood oxygen level. It can track your heart rate. So it's got a, a bunch of really cool features built in to help keep track of all of your health. And then is there a difference, though, between the different wearables, uh, ones that track your progress in a particular you know, in a particular exercise, let's say it tracks how many steps you do or how quickly you can do a run versus uh, other devices that track your vital signs along the way. And what's the difference between the two and, and what's the practical application of them? Well, so most of them are going are gonna to keep track of your steps and things like that. Anything that you wear on you is generally going to keep track of your steps. Um, there's always there, there's, there's going to be benefits to, to each thing. Like there, there are smart scales you can use, um, and that'll keep track of obviously your weight and your body mass. So you, and you can sort of pair some of these watches up with them. Fitbit, for example, makes a scale that you can pair with those with their watches. So you can sort of set yourself uh, a goal and use both products to sort of get to that goal that you've set. And then are there these wearable devices, do, do they have the tech um, that could send out a distress call? I mean, for example, you know, the Apple Watches have the, uh, the fall feature that say, it looks like you fell down. Do you want me to call somebody? Uh, are, do, do other uh, tech companies and other products have a, a similar person in distress type of uh, application? 
There are other brands that do that. Um, Garmin, Fitbit, they all have, most of them, I should say, have a feature like that that can help detect falls. Apple's is probably the most advanced in, in it also being able to kind of place a, a call for you if there's an emergency, which is a huge benefit because if you're out and you don't have your phone on you, that's going to be the way that you can get help. And then what about for kids? Because a couple of years ago for Christmas, our daughter uh, got the uh, Garmin VivoFit, which is uh, the, the, the youth version. And uh, she enjoys uh, tracking her steps at the end of the day and, and looking at all the stats via the app. Are there similar uh, products for kids? There are, yeah. Actually, mo- most most of the fit, fitness tracker companies make a version for kids now, and it's great because it gets them kind of involved in keeping an eye on their own health, and it gives them sort of something to look at uh, to see that their hard work is paying off. You know, you can have a little competition between brothers and sisters on who got more steps in that day or who ran that mile the fastest. I know that's my, that's how my kids are, so it's uh, it's certainly a cool way to keep track of stuff like that. Carl Prouty, the technologist at Apt Electronics and Glenview, thanks for joining us this afternoon. And be sure to join us at this time tomorrow for Entrepreneur Friday. And still to come, should investors sell in May and then go away? The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Some investors employ a strategy that calls for them to sit on the sidelines between May and October. Let's get a perspective on sell in May, go away from Mark Holbert, investment columnist for the Wall Street Journal, Barron's and Mark watch.com based in Washington. Mark, thanks for joining us today. And the phrase sell in May, go away, uh, traces its origins all the way back to 1776. And uh, with nearly 250 years of history, is there some merit to that strategy? Well, it turns out that there probably is, but I think we should put it in context as more and more people are aware of it. And then at least partially try to put it into practice. Of course, they discount away what might have previously been a fairly handsome profit. Uh, In a column this week on the subject, I looked at uh, the last 20 years, just for example, and uh, actually buying and holding the market would have done a lot better over the last 20 years than than, uh, selling in May and going away. So I, I don't want to oversell it, but if you do some nice statistical work on the strategy and adjust for risk and other fancy things like that, it does still come out ahead of just buying and holding the market. But you have to take into account things like risk adjustment in order to see its advantage. It seems like uh, looking about how maybe uh, uh, over the course of the, mo- the most recent 20 years, that trend might have reversed. Uh, it just goes to show that we probably have lived in a more interconnected world over the past 20 years compared to the decades and centuries before. I think that's exactly right. It turns out that some of the academic research into the into this seasonal pattern have traced it to the strength of summer vacations. There are some countries in Europe, I think France comes out at the top of this, sort of uh, analysis of uh, having uh, almost sacrosanct a period in time in the summer where everyone takes a a, a vacation. And the fact that there are fewer people in the market tends to make it uh, perform less well. But as you say, in this globally interconnected world, I think more and more people are online, regardless of what month it is. And even if they're on vacation, sitting on the beach, they're on their laptops, still trading the market. So that would suggest that if that is indeed the major factor causing this seasonal pattern, I think that interconnected world would explain why it's not as strong. Well, it's probably very easy to sell in May than go away when you're doing your summer va- when you're summering in Europe uh, in you know the 19 teens or the 1920s uh, when you're not 
always in touch with uh, with with the day to day world uh, versus today is now now you can you know have runs on banks via an app. <laughs> That's quite right, and and it just goes to show that you know it's so frustrating to people who have spent years researching the market, come up with these patterns that they think that'll work. And then the moment that they uh, they really fasten onto it, it stops working. And I think it's a phenomenon of exactly what you mentioned. Mark Hulbert, investment columnist for The Wall Street Journal, Barron's and Market Watch, based in Washington. Thank you for joining us today. If you missed any part of today's show, you can go to our stream and just skip back to the time you want. There's a pause and rewind function that works both online and with the Odyssey app. <laughs> 